Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on entertainment executive Faisal Durrani. Faisal is currently the co-CEO of Looped, a virtual venue and interactive digital platform which powers music concerts, comedy shows, and other entertainment events. In his role with the company, Faisal oversees strategic initiatives, new business opportunities, marketing strategies, and talent relationships. In early March, Looped announced that it closed funding of $7.7 million, which the company is going to use to accelerate its technology and product innovation. Over 1,000 creators have used the platform to sell tickets and merchandise, create backstage pass meet and greet rooms, initiate conversations between and with fans, and create co-viewing suites for groups to watch events together. Faisal shared great insights from his personal journey and his career path, but we really could have used another hour to cover the parts we missed. That said, I think you'll find his perspective and experience unique and valuable. And now, Faisal Durrani. Hi, handsome. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Uh, adjusting, uh, adjusting well, um, uh, personally and uh, on the business side to our new, to our new life. Yeah, that looks pretty it's good. Congratulations. Friendly. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? So I am uh, originally born in uh, Karachi, Pakistan. Um, was uh, when I was ten years old, uh, my family left uh, Pakistan and moved to Toronto, uh, um, Canada. Uh, I grew up in Toronto um, and uh, stayed there until I was in my mid twenties. Uh, at which time I was, because of work, transferred to New York um, and have um, stayed here in uh, America ever since. Was the, um, was the route from uh, Karachi to Toronto a common one? Was that, you know, did, did a lot of expats go in that direction? Yeah, so it's really interesting. You know, Canada, um, uh, before the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, Canada was the second largest uh, mass country in the world uh, behind the Soviet Union. Wow. And yet Canada uh, had uh, and still does have as many people in the entire country as the state of California. Yeah. And Canada has to uh, constantly try and and certainly was a big part of their policy um, in, in the 70s and 80s was to say, how do we attract uh, immigrants to come to this country um, that allow us to build on this country um, with the second, third, and fourth generations uh, to truly build uh, a value proposition in this country? And one of the criteria they had at that point, interestingly, was that they wanted to go after uh, people who were educated and who had at least two children. Mm. And their strategy was not so much that they would get those parents to truly love and become Canadian, but that they would get that next generation to truly love and become Canadian. 
And then, of course, they would have children and they would have children, etc. And today, Canada is one of the most multicultural places I've ever been to in the world. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is all uh, uh, the fabric, really, of um, uh, this immigration strategy that happened uh, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Now, was your family, um, just to talk a little bit about the mechanics of how it worked, was your family... And were families in general recruited? Like, was there a program? How did it work? How did you know to go to Toronto? Or how did your family know? Yeah, they, they were recruited. Um, uh, Canada went out to uh, certain countries in the world. Uh, and, and South Asians was definitely a place that they targeted. Um, where they uh, went and, um, you know, the, it, it wasn't a great time to be living in some of those countries. Uh, but the people were educated and did have yeah. uh, at least two children. And so they went out and marketed and recruited um, uh, in those countries. And what did your parents do? Uh, my father ran a, um, uh, an airline, um, a Pakistan International Airline, um, which was the national uh, government-owned uh, airline. And um, they were, uh, because... Canada had done such a great job of attracting Pakistanis to come. Uh, PIA, which is the name of the airline, actually decided to open up an office in Canada to start a new route, which was between Toronto and Lahore and Karachi, because so many Pakistanis were now moving to Canada. That's incredible. So 10 years old, um, you know, that's a, that's a very specific age. Like that's a, that's a, um, you know, there's a lot that goes into being a 10 year old emotionally sort of self-awareness and, you know, a sense of self. What, um, what was that like? What was that like uprooting across the world like that? Yeah, it was obviously, you know, the culture shock was immense. <laughs> um, the weather shock was immense. Oh God. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the language was a barrier. Um, really everything about it was, was, uh, quite traumatic. Um, but, um, it was also an incredible time because, um, there was only me, my mom and dad and brother and sister. And so this family unit had to come even closer together. Um, and, and I think that that made us a very close family. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of, uh, it, it was, you know, a lot of change and, and, uh, uh, difficult certainly for children. Um, when you add in racism, yeah. um, uh, it, life becomes very challenging, especially for a 10 year old who, by the way, has never seen anybody that looks any different than them, um, to then see people who look different than them. And those people treat you differently and are racist towards you is is difficult for a ten year old to go through all in in the course of a few years. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, as someone who who has built their career sort of in the pop culture world, I guess if that's a fair way to say it, um, what role did pop culture play in your um, you know in your grounding as a, as a young person, as a, as somebody who was emerging into adolescence and young adulthood was, was that a way into the mainstream or did you get lost in music? You know, what, what role did, did that play for you? No, I think, um, um, 
you know, I think that I tried to assimilate. And, um, you know, that was obviously through pop culture uh, that you tried to somehow assimilate into this new uh, fabric of community that you were thrown into. Um, and uh, playing sports, uh, uh, being a part of pop culture, understanding it uh, was very important. Um, as far as assimilation went. Yeah. And, and, and that's really how I learned about it. And my motivation to want to learn about it, as you find out later on in life, uh, really was based on assimilation. Yeah. And what, um, what were the hooks? You know, what, so what was some of your first exposure or interest in, you know, pop culture or music? Was there something that sort of got you through your adolescence or that you connected with early on or, you know, what, what was your stuff, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. I really grew up, uh, uh, Lawrence really being uh, more athletic oh, really? and uh, playing on team sports um, um, uh, was really what allowed me to assimilate music. Uh, the music side of my life uh, really came later on. And um uh, it was not necessarily a deep passion. Um, you know, sports and being athletic uh, was a deep passion. Um, and uh, as they say, you know, I didn't find the music business. The music business found me. Yeah. And uh, yeah. how did it find you and where did it find you? Uh, I had finished my uh, undergraduate degree. Uh, I had written my LSATs. I had wanted to be an attorney. <laughs> and um, I was um, waiting to hear uh, about acceptance into a, um, a college in Canada, a law school in Canada. And um, I had met some friends uh, while doing my undergraduate degree who were from uh, Singapore. And uh, they convinced me that we should all go and travel through Singapore and Southeast Asia for the next few months as we were all waiting to hear about our graduate uh, uh, programs. So I convinced my parents to let me do that. And uh, like every kid, I, I ran out of money. And I called them and said, hey, is there any chance you could send me more money? This was about three months into our trip. And they said, there's no chance you should just come home. <laughs> and so I came back. Um, and my father said to me, you know, um, at this point I had been uh, accepted into law school. And he said, it doesn't really matter to me what you do, um, but you're not going to do nothing uh, for six months. And uh, I remember going to my friend's house that night and uh, complaining to him about how my father was going to make me go work for six months while I waited to go to law school. And as it turned out, his brother was the uh, a supervisor um, uh, at a warehouse for A&M Records. And he said to me, hey, if you're just looking for a job for six months, why don't you just come by the warehouse and I'll give you a job picking orders in the warehouse. Yep. And that's how I really, for the first time, um, understood what a label did, what a music company was. Uh, etc. Uh, up until that point, I, I had no idea what labels did. Wow. Do you remember what records you were picking? What era was it? And what, which record did you handle the most? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian Adams. 
yeah. uh, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a lot of Brian Adams going out of A&M records. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a great fun time. Um, and really after uh, six weeks of picking orders in the warehouse, they asked me if I wanted to deliver the mail. Classic. And um, whoever was delivering mail uh, was leaving. And I, and I said, yeah, it sounds great. Um, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I'll get out of this um, a hot, sweaty warehouse and I'll get to walk through the office. And there's some uh, uh, cute girls in there and maybe I could talk them up. Um, and I said, sure, I'll deliver the mail. Um, and it was really there that I befriended the president of the company, a gentleman named Joe Summers, um, who really became my second father and my mentor, um, who uh, convinced me that I shouldn't go to law school and that I should uh, give give my uh, a shot to the music business. Wow. Um, and so what was it all started? What was job one after the mailroom? Like what, what, how did you actually pivot onto the business side? What kind of things did Joe loop you in on or where did he, how did you find your way? Yeah, Joe um, uh, did something, you know, that was incredible for me. Uh, he started me as the assistant to the vice president of promotion uh, where I could hear all the conversations that went on between record companies and radio stations. Mm. Um, and Joe um, insisted that he give me a new job uh, every 12 months. Wow. And so he would take me from there to running records in the clubs with the DJs. And then he would, at the time when videos actually mattered and getting them played, he would then gave me a job getting the videos played on uh, the MTV of Canada, which is called Much Music. Mm -hmm. And then he gave me a job in sales and then he gave me a job in radio promotion. And then, you know, he, he really worked me around to truly understand as much of the business as I could. And then he eventually um, felt like I was ready to incorporate all of those into a uh, product manager position. Um, and then eventually I became the head of marketing for, uh, A&M uh, Records in Canada, uh, as well as Island and Motown, uh, as, as there was consolidation happening at that time. Yeah. Um, and, and without Joe um, and without this mentor who uh, believed in me and kept moving me around and wanting me to learn, um, you know, there's no way I would be where I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, did you ever have the opportunity to find out or do you have an intuitive sense of what it was, um, like why you, why he, why he, what, what was it about you? What, what were you demonstrating as the kid from the mailroom that all of a sudden might, might, uh, give somebody the indication that you had, um, you know, that you had a high ceiling. Yeah. You know, it's a great question because now we are on the other side of it, right? We, yeah. we, we too are, you and I are now trying to evaluate who the next generation is. And, um, it's funny somebody asked me this, you know, because they said, when you meet the next generation, how do you know? And I said to them, I don't really know how I know, uh, but I know. Yeah. And I just know there's this thing, this, 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 it's not how well you give an interview. Uh, there's this feeling that you get from somebody 
that says, oh, I, I'd like to support them because their ceiling is very, very high. Yeah. yeah. And whatever that is, uh, Joe saw that in me um, and, and he fostered it. Yeah. Yeah. So how much time, how, how long were you in uh, Toronto with A&M before you came to New York? Uh, six and a half years. Wow. And so what brought you to New York? Um, I was um, at a international marketing conference for Polygram, where 42 of the uh, marketing heads from around the world had come. And um, at the end of the conference, you had to do a presentation uh, to a gentleman named David Munns at that point, uh, who was the number two under Alain Levy of Polygram. And um, after I finished my presentation, uh, David pulled me aside and said, uh, you need to stop wasting your time uh, in Canada, uh, <laughs> which represents 4% of the worldwide uh, business. And you need to move to America and you need to learn about the other 96%. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. So how, how lateral was that move? Did you have to take a step backwards to come into a bigger playing field or, you know, what, what did you, what did you walk into when you came to New York? Um, you, you know, I walked into uh, a, not knowing the job, um, <laughs> which was to, to do international marketing. Um, I had no idea what that meant. Uh, I walked into a city that I had uh, no friends in. Um, I walked into a culture um, that didn't necessarily want me to be there. They knew I was, you know, the bright star chosen by David Munns. Um, I really walked into a very... Um, into a very difficult environment. And, you know, again, a kid from Pakistan growing up in Toronto, um, living at home uh, until he left to go to New York, to move to New York City, uh, learn a new job, um, learn a new city, um, not have any friends, um, definitely was a, a, a great time in my life to test myself. Yeah, yeah. And, and how did you do? Was it seamless? Was it effortless? Was it grueling? Were you heartbroken? You know, what was, you, what, I, I, I asked the question particularly that way because uh, I know when I went to New York, um, you know, I, I didn't travel nearly as far as you did. I came from Connecticut and I was familiar with New York and I had friends who'd gone before me, but um, it's a unique experience, right? To go into that particular city um, and into the, into the music business at that time, right? Like it's, it's, it's in a way it's, um, it's gravy train days, right? Like sort of height of the CD, very intense. I would imagine. Um, did you thrive? Um, I think once I got over all the hurdles that you need to get over of just trying to survive, you know, and deal with all the complications that come of find an apartment in New yeah. York City. Oh, we can't find an apartment in New York City. Um, by the way, open up a bank account in New York City while you have a, um, um, you know, Canadian passport and a Pakistani passport. Uh, it, it, you know, all the simple things that, that never were really a part of my life were so complicated. Um, when I got through all of that, um, 
yeah, I, 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 I'd like to believe I thrived. And, and part of it was seeing, you know, suddenly having access to Chris Blackwell, mm-hmm. to L.A. Reid, uh, to Lior Cohen, to Russell Simmons. Um, these were real mavericks uh, in the business. And when you really sat there and had the opportunity to sit in meetings with them and re- really see the way their mind worked, um, I, I was fascinated. I, I had actually never seen this before. Yeah. Um, and you really realized why they were great at what they did. Yeah. And I, I was in school. Somebody was paying me to be in school uh, to learn from the greatest entrepreneurs in the world. It's funny when you talked about some of the logistics of um, getting established in New York, I can remember that feeling of um, when I found my first apartment, it took me two or three times. Like I had a couple of deals fall through. I didn't move fast enough. You know, I didn't understand that whole, like you see a place, you have to take it. You don't get to go home and think about it. Um, but I remember when I first got a place, I felt like, oh, I, I was, I felt so successful. <laughs> it's like things I had done, you know, a half a dozen times before I ever stepped foot in New York. I did it in New York and I felt like, oh my God, I've accomplished something. <laughs> I've somehow, I got an apartment in the big city. It's so, gru- you know, to your point, every little thing is so much more complicated. Um, and every little thing you master there feels like such an accomplishment. Like if you could, it's so true. If you could do it there, it's such a great, great feeling. Um, but I wonder, you know, you mentioned that sort of list of iconic names of these entrepreneurs and executives. Um, was there a common commonality between them? Did they have a personality attribute? Was there something that, that even in retrospect, you look back and say, oh, this was the thing? Yeah, I um, listen for our business. Uh, first of all, uh, they were able to evaluate art um, at a level that was far greater than anything else I had seen. Yeah. Yeah. Two is they, you know, taking risk and swinging at the highest level was something that they were also very comfortable with. Yeah, there was there was no paralysis by analysis. Yeah, they they when they believed they didn't need CFOs to run numbers. They didn't need all those things. They all have this incredible ability to evaluate art. And this thing that I honestly had not seen yet, which is an appetite and a thirst for risk and the reward that came with it. And this is not really what you're taught as a Canadian. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the it's the it's the thing that uh, uh, Joe understood about me. Um, he would say to me, you know, why did the Canadian cross the road? And I'd say to get to the other side, Joe. And he'd say, no, to get to the middle. <laughs> yeah. And and really, you learn that that's the charm of the country. Yeah. You know, a country that's never been to war. Um, uh, has never, didn't even fight for its own independence. Um, Canada really is the Switzerland of, of uh, the West. Yeah. And um, I was not trained. I was taught to cross the road to get to the middle. 
And suddenly these great mavericks were teaching me there's only one point to cross the road, which is you got to get to the other side. And by the way, you got to get there as quickly as possible. Yeah. And this is, this is what I saw in all of them. Yeah. And was that attractive? Very. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a high. That's a, that's a wow. You know, imagine somebody thinking that way. And by the way, imagine them achieving that way. And, um, you know, this is possible. Uh, this isn't something you learned in business school. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're living it. You're seeing the impact of it. And certainly in the music business, you know, uh, you see the impact of what you do very quickly. Yeah. So. I'm curious about, um, and I promise we'll fast forward through some, some of the other uh, detail, but I'm curious as to what international marketing, um, what that looked like a little bit mechanically back then. So when I worked in those worlds or I worked in label contexts, um, I observed that each sort of major label group had a slightly different approach and a different model. I can remember um, a period of time at Sony, for example, where artists would be sort of nominated or projects would be nominated and there'd be X number a year that were sort of priority. And really the repertoire could come from anywhere, but it was pretty much the U S and the UK. Um, maybe you'd get a, you know, an Italian tenor or something once in a while thrown in for good measure. Um, but then there would be a half dozen or 10 at most. And those would be the global projects for the year. Um, what was your experience like with that? Did, did every project have a shot of being, stove piped up or was it sort of predetermined who was going to get a, a whack? Uh, it was definitely, uh, uh, there was a priority list yeah. uh, that was manufactured, formulated by somebody um, uh, uh, above me uh, on what the uh, territories would uh, commit to spending their money against. Um. But I will say this, you know, how did I really learn about international? Uh, very early on, um, while I was doing the job, I got a call uh, from David Munns, who said, um, nobody knows this yet, but I, we're about to buy 50% of a company called Def Jam Recordings. And I would like you, uh, and our real value of buying this company um, is that they don't do any international business. Yeah. Hip hop was still very much of a, uh, came out of New York and starting to move across the country. Um, and some called it a fad and some, you know, uh, said it would never last, et cetera. But it was definitely not any value in the international market. And David said to me, I'd like you to go and meet with Russell and Lior. And I'd like you to figure out how to really take this company and make them global. And you can only imagine in the mid to late 90s, uh, trying to take hip hop and uh, grow it around the world yeah. um, was, a, was a very, very difficult task. Um, it was a difficult task, certainly for the territories to understand. Um, and it was even a challenge for the domestic company to understand 
And it was certainly a challenge for the artists to understand why they were going to these places and talking foreign language and uh, living outside the comfort of, of uh, it was all extremely challenging. Um, and that is really where I cut my teeth doing international. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. I have to ask what, um, if you contrast, let's just take them into sort of decades, late nineties, late aughts, and then today, what's the state of hip hop as a global phenomenon? My, my perception is that tremendous jump those first 10 years. Like we, we really didn't have truly global superstars until the mid late two thousands. Um, even artists we would have perceived as such, I don't think were, um, has that only gotten, you know, has, has hip hop grown globally in the last 10 years? Has that stagnated? What's your, what's your sort of state of the union? Um, I think that there was a moment in time when creatively there was a fusion that happened between hip hop and R and B. And when that fusion happened, you could also see not only in this country the complete expansion of it, but now you started to see um, its its value and acceptance from around the world. Mm. And, you know, to me, that was the breaking point. The, the, the ability to take hip-hop and, and, and fuse it with R&B to put in these... Uh, big hooks that people could sing along to um, that they could understand. Yeah. Is it bigger today? Yes, I believe it's bigger today. Not, not. Uh, um, uh, it's certainly bigger musically than it ever has been. But I think the whole um, uh, concept of urban culture uh, is bigger inside of our country today than it ever was, and is certainly a very, very large influence. Uh, around the world. So I think it's more than just the music. It is the entire culture um, um, that has, uh, uh, has, has a huge impact uh, around the world. Yeah. And how did you, how did you pivot from being on the label side of things to being in the live world? Again, a, a place uh, also populated by big entrepreneurial personalities and big risk takers. So there's definitely a common thread there, but how did you get there? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Michael Rapino was um, uh, becoming the uh, new head of uh, Clear Channel Entertainment. Uh, him and I knew each other from uh, Toronto. Uh, we were friends. Um, and he called me one day and said, you know, I think it's time for you to get out of the label business. And uh, I felt like the label business had become stagnant. Um, it didn't have the innovation that it needed uh, to excite me. And he said, you know, um, I think that you should come and learn about the live side of this business, um, which was a very fast growing business um, and a company in Clear Channel Entertainment that was really the amalgamation of, uh, uh, you know, 70, uh, hundred of the greatest mavericks in the world uh, that had been bought up and, and, and put together. Um, 
And uh, Michael is somebody that I have uh, not only uh, loved as a friend, but somebody that I had admired for uh, many years is his business mind. Um, and I thought, wow, this opportunity sounds amazing. Uh, I know nothing about live music uh, and how to put on a concert. Um, but this is, you'll see that there's a theme with me of, uh, I like to go take on things I know nothing about. Yeah. Yeah. And just to contextualize it for people, the this era is really just in the first few years after the smoke clearing from sort of the Napster um, decimation of the recorded music business, um, still tremendous contraction in terms of revenue and heads. Like it was not a great time to be thinking like, you know, what are the next 20 years and recorded music going to look like? It had to be had to be a bit sort of scary or, or at the very least very unclear as to what the path forward was at that point. Would that be fair? I, I, I think that's completely fair. You know, we had gone from uh, it was in the middle of a conversion into a digital business. It had gone from the boom of a uh, three carrier market where you were selling CDs and cassettes and vinyl um, to really only selling one uh, carrier, which was the CD um, to trying to figure its way out into this digital space of uh, selling an album as an MP3. Um, but it was still one product. Um, and it just was not an exciting time for the business. Um, it was definitely reducing revenues. Um, and there was no innovation that was coming into the market. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, if you had to uh, sort of, you know, someone who's known, uh, Michael Rapino for a long time, do you have a, like, do you have a, uh, a perspective on what his superpower is or what, what his, you know, first of all, the staying power alone, you know, to, to guide that ship for as long as he has through the downturn in 2008, clearly what they've been through and we've all been through together over the last year and, and the indicators of how they're going to emerge from that. Um, what's his, what's his defining characteristic as a businessman? I, I, I just think that he um, uh, sees uh, uh, seven steps ahead uh, when the rest of us are trying to live in today, um, he, he, he's already seven steps ahead um, of, of what he's doing and what he's going to accomplish and how he's going to do it. Um, his vision um, is, is really his superpower. Yeah. And he, he's, he's as visionary as a person I've ever been around. Yeah. And so um, I do want to... Um... I do want to fast forward a little bit, but could you just tell me a little bit about um, your time at Live Nation and sort of, so you come in, start to learn the business and what was that story? You know, you, 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 you came in with one set of sort of perspective and knowledge and expertise and you kind of left a whole other executive, you know, you, 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 you've grew and developed and did some really incredible things. What was that journey? Um, it, it was fascinating. Uh, again, these were very early days uh, you know, I got there in uh, March of 2005 uh, when the company was Clear Channel Entertainment. Um, the company really at that point was, as I said, um, you know, the business was built on local businesses, right? Um, um, whether you had Mojo in Holland or you had Ronnie Delsner in New York or you had 
electric factory in Philadelphia. Um, these were all just great local mavericks who had built local businesses. And um, they hadn't really figured out and, and, and how to become a, a national uh, global footprint. Um, and so I went there as the president of marketing uh, for uh, Michael. And um, really, I got there in March of 2005. And one of the first things that was given to us was that the company had to spin off uh, by the end of December, by the end of 2005. And so while I was still trying to figure out how to live in Los Angeles and how did the phones work and could I get a lease on a car, here came the, oh, by the way, uh, this company must spin off from Clear Channel uh, by December of 2005. And we began the journey of trying to, which is, I think, the best thing for it, to try and create a new brand. Yeah. And that brand of Live Nation was born from that. Um, um, and, uh, you know, so for the first year, all I was really doing was marketing and branding and trying to a, find a name that was clearable in, you know, 54 countries in the world that was available, that represented obviously the fabric of what we wanted to do, et cetera. Um, and then starting to build a, um, um, uh, you know, national and a global infrastructure on the marketing side. Um, and I spent uh, three years doing that. Um, and then Michael uh, really came to a, a few of us that had been there with him in the beginning. And he said, uh, we're growing too quickly. This is where I tell you he's an incredible visionary. And he said, um, really, you have to make a decision. You can either work with uh, uh, artists and the content or you can work in corporate on the business. But you can't do both. And he said, you all get to make your decision on, as I grow at this company, which side you want to be on. Mm. And I had always loved and enjoyed uh, being close to artists and managers. Um, uh, they still uh, get me excited the way they think uh, um, uh, what they do. Uh, and I chose to go on that side and... Um, you know, uh, w left my position as uh, president of marketing for Live Nation and went into touring um, so that I could have the ability to work more closely with artists and managers. Yeah. Do you remember the first uh, tour you put together while you were there? Yeah, I called a friend, uh, Benny Medina, um, who was managing uh, Mariah Carey uh, at that time. And I said, hey, Benny, um, I I've got this new position at Live Nation. And um, you're going to do a deal with me uh, for Mariah Carey, and we're going to go do a, a North American tour. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, Faisal, I love you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always down for working with you, but you don't know anything about touring. <laughs> yeah. And I said, that's fair, uh, but you're my friend and you're going to do it with me. And uh, by the way, it's not like you all know that much either because you don't really do it. Yep. And that was my first tour was doing 35 dates around North America with Mariah Carey, um, which was a huge success. 
And um, I really called some friends. I called John Manili, who was managing Jay-Z, um, you know, um, uh, and I called out some friends and said, here, here it is. Uh, here's what I'm doing, and let's do some business together. And I was very fortunate that the artist community and the management community um, um, really came in and wanted to go on the journey with me and, and learn about touring. You know, it's fascinating, just about uh, those couple of examples, and I'm sure we could think of a few others, but um, I feel like a part of the story that, um, you know, doesn't get told that often is just the role that the artist development and the label roll up of the pre-universal polygram has played in the modern record business. When you think about the that era, that generation of artists that I guess are now are sort of heritage artists, so many of the artists came out of that system. So many of the superstars that are still out there, dependable touring acts, still capable of having hits. It's really how much innovation on the business side really came from that generation of people such as yourself and others, but also the artists as well. It's really an interesting facet of the modern business. I, I think it's such a great point. I, to be honest, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, but yes, I agree with you. I think if you really go back to that era, and uh, look at those artists, look at those managers, look at those executives, and look at the complete shift that was also happening in the business model. And the shift from uh, physical to digital in the label space and uh, the whole concept of, by the way, a global tour. Yeah, right? that's right. That, that now, now everybody does it, but nobody was doing it at that point. And this concept of going and signing global touring deals uh, was not how you did things. Um, but you're right. I think if you really went back and studied that era, you would find so much innovation uh, actually came out of that era. Yeah, yeah. So, um, with, uh, I, you know, we could go year by year and, and the story just gets more and more fascinating. But I, I really need to understand um, what's going on with Looped, first of all, um, because, uh, you know, not just anybody can raise money during a pandemic. Um, I understand you're doing something that's timely for a pandemic, but um, tell me the loop story. I, I need to dig into this. Uh, Looped is um, really a, a vision of wanting that there is a um, convergence that is happening towards the um, uh, virtual event business. And uh, it has certainly been accelerated uh, during the pandemic. Um, but I was a believer that this was going to happen anyway. And I think the pandemic probably saved us two to three years of growth. Um, but I'm a big believer um, that, that, like every other business that has been revolutionized by technology and and that the event business will also be impacted by the digital where physical meets digital mm -hmm. um, and that we are just on the cusp of it. Uh, so looped is uh, twofold. One is um, we are out trying to create the greatest virtual venue in the world by being a product innovation company um, um, that is really focused on um, how do we get the fans to be able to have more access and more interaction with the creators? 
how do we get creators to have more fan access and integration? And how do we get create environments where fans can integrate even um, uh, uh, more timely um, and in a more effective way uh, than what they currently can? So um, everything is about uh, creating this venue that allows for uh, more interaction fan to fan and creator to fan. The word that you keep using that really stood out uh, for me when reading the background material was venue. This is not, um, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's really interesting to see how um, where most companies in the space talk about platform, you talk about venue um, and maybe, you know, the platform is the venue or however, I don't, I don't want to be overly clever about it, but I think that's a, that was the first thing that stood out to me was just the differentiation and how you position it and then what falls out of it from there. So um, the features um, of the venue are, um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because that stood out to me as well as like where, where the differentiation rubber really meets the road. Yeah, I think, listen, everybody today says that they're a, um, um, you know, they can throw up a shingle and say that they're a live streaming platform. Sounds really good. Yeah. And what does that mean? Uh, that means, quite frankly, the technology already exists in the marketplace for anybody to be able to throw a player up on a page uh, and live stream. And so you have a lot of people running around saying that they are a live streaming platform. And by the way, they are. But that's not really where the win comes. Um, for me, the win comes in... How do you create more product lines inside of, in the place that I know, inside of your venue? Right? How do you uh, sit and say, I have a venue and I have a main stage and I have a backstage and I have uh, uh, co-viewing suites and I have everything that you need as a creator for you to be creative in the, in, in the uh, content that you create? and for you to be able to interact directly with your fans and to create an environment like any venue should that is beneficial for the experience of, of the fans themselves. And so that's why I say it's a venue um, because I think for me, it helps us to define what it is that we're trying to do. Yeah. In, in the metaphor of the venue, where, do, where does at the sort of the tool set level, where's the handoff? What does the artist and their team do? Are, are, you, are you production tools or do you start at the point of they deliver a feed? Like how does, how does that work? Uh, it really is a, 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 as you know, this is really about um, introducing them to all the things that we can do. And for them, uh, depending on really, the amount of infrastructure they may have or may not have the ability to take different pieces of it from us. Gotcha. Yeah. So the starting point is, look, you have a, a programming idea and you need a venue to be able to uh, um, uh, put that through. Here's the basic, uh, we can do that. Um, and here's how we can be more creative uh, inside of that programming idea you have. Yes, can we do production if you need production? Yes. Can we actually be a creative agency and help you ideate some programming ideas? Yes. Mm. Um, there, there are a lot of things, obviously, our experience um, uh, allows us to do with creators. 
Um, it's really about understanding what, what it is that they need help with to, to uh, uh, see this come to life. Are you a promoter? Are you a risk taker on the show? No. No. Don't want to be a promoter, have been a promoter. Um, I want to be the venue. Yeah. Uh, I, want, I want to be Madison Square Garden. I want to be the O2. I want to be the Staples Center. Um, I want to be the greatest venue in the world that, you know, um, even when the promoter does the deal with you, they have to go rent a venue to actually do the show. In. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting that, um, you know, a lot of folks, um, I get asked all the time, like, what do you think is going to happen with live streaming? I'm sure you get asked it 50 times. If I get asked 10 times, you get asked 500, but, <laughs> um, and sort of what I, what I arrived at pretty early on in the pandemic was, um, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to have the, a very similar, at least experience vantage point, which is, you know, 20, 25 years ago, we were doing a lot of these things, right? We were doing webcasts and it might've been, we had to go, if we had an artist that wanted to webcast, we might've had to go bring in the ISDN lines or uh, maybe took the <laughs> feed from the, you know, from the in-house screens and just encoded that and pumped it out, whatever it was. But those products they never really mainstreamed, right? They were always maybe promotional. Uh, let's, you know, let's, let's web stream, let's webcast the production rehearsal or opening night or the free show, or it was always something like that promotional sponsored. Um, and I think, you know, it's taken the better part of 20 years to actually productize the live stream model. Um, so that's sort of point A. Point B is, um, is it going to go away? I, my sense is absolutely not. It's now it's finally, because it's now able to be viewed as a product and not a promotional opportunity, it's actually going to emerge into its own um, creative type, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, TV didn't replace film, recorded music didn't replace radio. Um, and even within those, you have the subset. So, you know, a sitcom has its own styles and conventions and formats different from a drama, different from something else. The, I think we finally at a point now, the live stream is going to be its own thing, its own medium. It's going to have its own sort of styles and conventions. Um, so to me, it's, it's, it's sort of like, finally, <laughs> that's sort of my feeling about it is, wow, it's finally, you know, it, but it's taken a long time. I, I think it has taken a long time. I think that's fair, Lords. But, you know, I, I'm going to say this. We, we, um, we like to think that we know how to dictate timing. Mm. And what you really realize in life is uh, timing is something we can't really control. Um, it is the reason uh, most really good ideas work or don't work. Aside from the CEO, um, and the timing wasn't right on on um, you know webcasting whatever we called it back then. Uh, it, it wasn't right. What we know today is that the timing is right. Yeah, and this is not going away. This is going to become bigger. And what I also know is, as we uh, uh, you know have this cross section that happens between the digital space and the physical space, really we realize very rarely does it replace. Most times we live in a hybrid world. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen as we move forward in this business is 
the concept of having work virtual events is going to be not a replacement for physical events, but we're going to get to a place where it finds its way of coexisting and actually then coming together as one. Um, and whether half of the, the uh, consumers want to do it uh, virtually and the other half want to do it physically or 10% want to do it virtually and 90% want to do it virtually, though, those, those days are yet to be seen. Um, and we don't know what the consumer behavior is going to be. And by the way, we don't know the innovation that is going to come, which is what we're trying to do at Looped, that is going to help you make your decision on whether you want to um, uh, attend and have an experience virtually or you want to do it physically. Yeah. When you say um, when you when you use the word hybrid, do you mean that the same event will exist in the in the in a physical venue and the virtual venue at the same time? I think so. Yeah. 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 I, I don't see any reason why that's not going to happen. Um, I don't, I don't know why we wouldn't want that to happen. Um, and I know that there are some times that we're going to do virtual events that won't exist in a physical place. And I think sometimes we're going to do physical events that don't exist in a virtual place, but I think that's going to be very few and far between. Mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, so it's, it, it's almost, it will be a component of most events unless there's a compelling reason not to. Unless there's a compelling reason not to. And for the life of me, I can't figure out what that compelling reason is not to. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting sort of repercussion when you think about, um, you know, I guess one way to say it would be the reach for an event. Uh, but I'm thinking about it through the lens of sort of inclusion. Uh, people who normally have missed out on the live music experience or have missed out on that sort of that improvisational spark of being at a live show and hearing the artist. And even if it's the music, you know, even if it's the type of artist who plays very, you know, faithful renditions of the music, it's different. It's different when it's live. And um, it's exciting to think about bringing that to more people who maybe couldn't make it into a venue for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with you. I think it is different. Um, I think it's different to go, uh, to a live hockey game than it is to watch on television. I think it's different to go to a live concert uh, inside of a venue than it is to watch it on your uh, virtual venue inside of Luke's. I think it's different to uh, go to the store and uh, buy that new sweater than it is to go online and uh, buy that new sweater that you're wearing. Yeah. That's right. But what we learn in life is that we do both. And this is the hybrid that I speak of that, that I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see a world where we only go to uh, concerts when um, um, they're live. I don't see a world when we uh, live and physical, I don't see a world where we only go to sporting events when they're physical and live. I don't, I don't see that really in anything else we do. So why would we say that that's going to happen in the music space or, you know, our idea for looped is obviously it's a, it's a venue, not only for music, but it's out there for a lot of different uh, content that is being created. And um, I think it's, I, I, I think it's of great benefit as we move forward. Yeah. 
tell me a little bit about the fundraise before we uh, before we move towards wrapping up here. What was uh, what was the what was the process like in the midst of um, of a pandemic? Um, it was definitely interesting. It's um, you know as you saw with the press release, we have over a uh, hundred different um, uh, um, uh, portfolios that have come into this raise. And when I really think about it, you go, wow. And I never met one of them physically. That's incredible. Yeah. When will that ever happen again in life? Yeah. That I have actually not met one of them physically through this entire process. Um, but we are learning to communicate. Yeah. yeah. And uh, no different than you and I are right here today. Hey, would we love to be sitting down in a, a nice little cafe or your studio? Sure. But, you know, this feels pretty good. It's really great to reconnect with you. Um, so, yeah, this, this, this race has been fascinating uh, because we went and did it in a time when you could never actually meet with anybody physically. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and you're sort of, you're, you're treading this side of the line of, of modesty. So I'll go out and say it, which is there's, there had to be something particularly compelling um, about the pitch and, or the team that would make over 100 portfolios in a time of not being able to have that sort of let's sit across the table and have the the deep talks or at least let, you know, the, the, the body language vibe, um, you know, step up like that. So, um, can you, uh, are you in a position in the first person to talk about that at all? You know, you, you've seen other deals, right? You've looked at deals, you've passed on deals, you've put money into deals. Um, what did you bring to it and what did your team bring to it that made 100 portfolios step up, um, in those unique circumstances? Uh, I think it's twofold. I, I, I think, um, uh, people, uh, uh, responded very well to, um, uh, our belief that we are going to be a product innovation company in this space and that um, for us to be great at what we do, uh, life is all about product innovation. And I, I don't see other companies saying that. Um, I don't see other companies truly focused on that. Uh, I don't see other companies uh, really believing that. And I definitely don't see other companies putting tremendous resources uh, uh, towards that goal of being a product innovation company. Um, and I think that is something that truly stood out with these uh, 100 LPs of, um, hey, A, I really love this space. And for all the things you and I have talked about, the space is going to grow. And I really love the approach of Looped, of uh, their focus on being a product innovation company and us uh, showing what that product innovation really was, you know, our meet and greet technology is, uh, for me, um, um, as good as it is in the marketplace. Uh, the reliability that you can get with um, uh, your live streaming on our main stage is about as good as it can get. Uh, as you know, we've recently released co-viewing suites, um, which is a technology yeah, that's really that. Cool. Yeah, and, and and so we're not just saying it; we're 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 living it and. Uh, people are following behind us, um, but that is what's driving us. And um, um, I, I think people got a real sense of that and, and wanted to be a part of the journey with us. Yeah. So uh, I want to be respectful and, 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 uh, and let you go here in a minute, but I have to ask what's the, um, 
Now the fundraise is behind you. You've got this product innovation roadmap. What's the next thing you have to do? What's the, you know, you're going to hang up from here or you're going to come back to work in the morning. What's the, um, what's the next thing you have to do to be successful? Uh, the next thing uh, for me of what we have to do to be successful, um, aside from what we are already doing, yeah, which we will continue to be even better at, um, is that we have to uh, find an application uh, towards programming, uh, recurring programming that happens inside of our venue. Mm. And I am now completely driven by um, doing, working with creators to find this original programming uh, that uses all of these incredible tools we've built inside of our venue to say, can we actually create something new together, a new format? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is what I believe is going to be the uh, real, real tell for um, how big we can be. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I, uh, I'm super excited for you. I think that any, just as a, a person has to get up and go to work every day, right? You get to, you get to put on a creative hat, you get to put on a business and strategy hat. Um, and to be able to, to scratch both those itches without um, actually being required to, you know, you have to do both of those things if you're going to succeed. That's a really special special environment. Otherwise, we're just all investment bankers. <laughs> You, you, you couldn't say, listen, uh, very early on, you know, um, uh, Chris Blackwell uh, uh, used to come to me all the time and he'd say to me, um, Faisal, you know, they call it the music business. And he would leave my office. Right. And then we'd have lunch and we'd go through some business together. And he'd say, Faisal, you know, they call it the music business. Right. And after Chris saying it to me like 10 times, I finally said, Chris, I have to ask you, why do you keep saying to me they call it the music business? And he said, well, of course, they don't call it the business of music, right? Yeah. And my, 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 my brain blew up, yeah, that we don't call it the business of music. We call it the music business. And what's the real beauty here? It's music. It's art. Yeah. And then we get to do the business. But we need both of them to come together for us to find magic. So you're right, Lawrence, what excites me? Yeah, I still get to be creative. I still get to talk to very creative people. They may look a little different than what I'm used to, and it might not be the biggest artists in the world. It might now be the biggest creators in the world and the influencers in the world. Um, and then we get to talk also about business. And, and I agree with you. Most people in their life don't get a chance to do that, do this on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and I feel very, very blessed that, that it, I, I really get to do both. Well, I'm excited for, for to watch this all unfold. Um, there's so much more I could dig into with you, but um, maybe we'll do that over a meal when we can get together, hopefully in a few short months. Uh, I, get, I get my first vaccine Thursday, so uh, I'm on the path. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm getting one next week. Um, but even without that, why don't we have a, a virtual um, uh, drink together? That's true. We can do that. That's true. We can yes. do that.
Thank you, Faisal Durrani and the team at Looped. Thank you, Ant Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.